Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. And we are live. Hey guys, this is Ruben Dua from Dub's podcast, Connection Loop, and I'm here with Jackie Hermes. We're going to get into this topic of being purposefully positive. A lot of people think that positivity is something that we're born with when in fact, maybe it's not, maybe it's actually a practice that we have to go through on a daily basis. And Jackie's going to guide us with that. We're also going to get into some tips on web development and entrepreneurial life and maybe some LinkedIn stuff. Jackie, if you could give me a short bio and let's get into the topic here. Yes. So, hi. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I'm Jackie Hermes, the CEO of Excelity, which is a B2B marketing agency that works with software as a service or SaaS startups and scale-ups. So, what that really means is we're working with companies that are sometimes pre-revenue launching products, which is really exciting, up to like 30 to 40 million usually. It depends kind of what, what their marketing department looks like. But we are, I was just thinking about this yesterday, we are approaching year eight. So I started the company eight years ago this upcoming March, which is really insane to even think about. Wow, well, congratulations. That's a big <laughs> Thank deal. Thank you. Purposefully positive. How do we how do we get there? What does that what does that mean? What's the practice? Were you always positive? Are you always positive? No, not at all. Uh, And you know what? It's interesting. Uh, Some people I do think are kind of born a little more positive than others. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, I just did an employee feature video of one of the members of my team, Jen. And even when she is stressed or she's experiencing things, she still shows up positive. Like she's had, you know, some personal stuff going on during COVID as a lot of us have. And a lot of us show up and I have the tendency to do this sometimes too. We show up a little, a little crabby or we bring, you know, whatever's happening on the outside into our meetings or our work. And she just is just naturally very positive. Um, But for other people, I think that you have to work at it. I would say naturally I am not a positive person whatsoever. Um, And I, you know, I don't really know where that stems from. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say I look at the glass as half empty, but I would say I look at it, you know, like, okay, the glass is halfway and it's kind of a neutral look. um, And that, you really have to work to be positive if you are not one of those people that is kind of born naturally positive. Um, I started listening to Lori Harder's podcast a few years ago, and she talks a lot about this, um, about how she says like every morning she wakes up and there's like a positive dog and a negative dog and the dog that's like clanging at the bowl to be fed first is the one who is negative for her and that she has to focus on that positivity. That makes sense. You know, I, I feel like sometimes uh, positivity is actually a defense mechanism because when you're surrounded by negativity or you're surrounded by lack of trust or uncertainty, chaos, that being positive actually prevents you from absorbing through osmosis some of those negative emotions. Now, on one hand, I think that there is that person that's overly positive and overly chipper, and it's like, all right, just calm the F down because like we got to solve this problem. 
But then on the flip side, there's the opposite side of the spectrum. And I think it all comes down to, um, I don't know why I'm making a Mr. Miyagi reference, but it's, it's, about, <laughs> it's about balance, right? It's about balance, right? And it's yeah. about, I think, hope and, and faith. Um, I like to live in, in this idea of, of gratitude. Anytime I'm feeling crappy, I go back to gratitude and I say, God, you know what? There are some people that don't have what I have right now. And, and that actually gets me to a, a baseline approach <laughs> um, from a genuine perspective. And then from there, it's the, the, you know, the, the sky's the limit. What is, what is your approach, um, both on an individual level, but then also on a team level, when you have a challenge, when you have something to tackle and you guys need to figure out a strategy to overcome that in a positive way? Yeah, I would say I am a pretty realistic and action oriented person. So, you know, when I am, so for example, we have a client right now that just is not super seeing eye to eye with our team. And mm. it's every week, it's, you know, these challenges in conversation where, uh, where it seems like they're changing direction, or they're not bought in, or maybe the contract wasn't as clear as it could have been, or whatever it may be. Um, when I'm presented with something like that, I want to think through what are all sides of this, because it's very easy when you work in the service industry, especially, you know, providing services to companies to say, they're doing this wrong, or they're not showing up for meetings, or they didn't read the contract and blame others versus looking at it to think, how are they feeling right now? You know, like, where could we have been clearer? And I think that we need to get into conversation on a different level to first seek to understand each other before, you know, going back and forth. Um, I will say that the team doesn't always love when I do that, because it's like, you know, uh, I guess it could maybe feel like they are being blamed, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, you know, because it's like, well, if we take ownership and we look at what we can do better, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a it's an interesting approach, and but I like to really try to see things from all sides and really talk to the client and understand why they might be. Um, you know, feeling that way or reacting in that way. And the, the entire team, we try to do this with. Yeah, I, th I think that's sound advice. You know, I think it's always a case by case scenario. One of the things that I have learned to do uh, late in my career uh, through, I think, failure and hardship is that saying no and bringing that negativity it actually yields positivity. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, a lot of people talk about firing a client. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of us should do that because, you know, it's good to keep clients and, and overcome challenges. But at the same time, when something gets very treacherous in a relationship where the expectations are off, that sometimes being able to say the person that's receiving the money, for them to be able to say, I, I don't think we're a good fit. And I think you you know, you should find someone else. I think what that does is that it, it, it raises the red flag, you know, now it's risky. I'm not saying that this is a chess match and we should play with that. Uh, it has to be legitimate. But I think what happens in that situation is that it raises the red flag and it is a, it's a new starting point. It's a negative place, which can then be a, a starting point for potentially something positive to rework expectations, relationship, deliverables, and, and whatnot. Now, it's, it's hard to do. Have you, have you found yourself in a situation where you had to either completely fire a client or get very close to that point, and you are so thankful that you did either one? 
We have fired a few clients. I actually just had to do this about a month ago. Now, this was a different, very sticky situation where they actually hired a member of our team, which is a big no no. Um, <laughs> but and and we we did not. So I believe I believe the word is stole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. It was not great. Um, she actually was kind of on her way out anyway, and so they thought it would be fine. And so you know, initially I was not thrilled, <laughs> as I don't think a lot of people would be in that situation. Um, but, you know, when I thought through the entire situation and thought about, you know, like, do, do I believe they had bad intentions? No. Do I believe they knew everything that was going on in our organization would, and why this made it, on, you know, a relationship that we couldn't continue? No, I don't think they had any idea that we would terminate the contract. And so the conversation we ended up having was, you know, look, look, I know that we have had a great working relationship. I really respect you. I believe you respect me. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to strengthen our contract so this does not happen again. Um, and we're going to part ways as friends. And I think that if you can do it like that, even if you have a contentious working relationship, sometimes it's a blessing to say, this isn't working for us. And I know it's not working for you either. Um, and it's evident. And I would love to give you the opportunity to find a resource that is going to, you know, better align with what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel good because it's money, right? It's money out the door, especially when you're trying to grow a business. Um, when you have contracts that are in the tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, just it's, a, it's a lot easier to retain a client than it is to acquire a new one, right? <laughs> it certainly is. But there are effects of retaining poor, poor fit clients that you don't yes. always see until later, like uh, losing yes. team members or decreased morale or whatever, whatever it may be. So yes. I think we've gotten we used to take a lot from clients and we've gotten a lot more strict with what we will accept and that there must be mutual respect and uh, these other requirements. So yes, funny enough, I just had to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. The more experience that we get, the more seasoned we are, the longer our onboarding contracts are, the more elaborate our processes are, our project management systems, so that ultimately, the person can't call, the client can't call 30 days in and say, I thought you guys were going to be doing our SEO. And we said, well, SEO, what are you talking about? That was nowhere in the contract. We're doing like this and this. Yeah. So I think how, how important is it? Um, and, and of course, not bulletproof, but how important is it to set expectations in the beginning um, and to manage up, manage mm -hmm. our, our clients? Because it's not just them managing us. It's us managing them, and you know that with with um, you know having your your agency for now almost eight years. I think that setting expectations is the key, the most important part yes. of signing on a new client. Um, mm. Because it, I mean, even if you have conversations where you don't end up including something in a contract, and then you know the client says, "All right, looks great," and signs it, but and then they later say they don't really care if it's in the contract or not if you talked about it, right? Mm. Um, so I think that those expected expectation setting conversations are the most important. Now, I I suffer from a problem. And I'd like to get some some advice from you in this in this therapy session here. <laughs> <laughs> the problem that I have is sometimes I can't say no. Sometimes they say, "Can you do this?" And I say, "Yeah, we we could do that. No big deal. We got this." You know. And then you know, four weeks in, um, we are in the rabbit hole of trying to deliver 
X, you know, and there's the opportunity cost and the, there was the you know, unexpected things that happened on that path. Um, how can you guide and help some of the people that that have that neuron where they just want to deliver? <laughs> mm -hmm. And when in fact, sometimes that's actually the irresponsible thing to do. It is a lesson that I have learned the hard way. It mm. sounds like you have to. Uh, that no, I haven't learned it. I haven't learned oh, it. <laughs> okay. Well, you're in the process of learning it. Um, and I'll and tell you, know, you a funny story about that too. I, I mean, we still make those mistakes here and there where we're yeah. like, oh yeah, that's something we're working on or we're learning internally. And even if we're not super strong at it yet, yeah, I think we could do that. And it's never, it ends up being a disservice to the team and a disservice mm -hmm. to the client. And every single time I have, we've taken those projects that weren't quite in our wheelhouse or we kind of stretched our services so that, you know, one of our clients could have everything in house or whatever, whatever they wanted it to be it's never ended up being worth the money, no matter how much mm. the project was. I've always looked back and said, okay, we went way over budget. It was a pain. Employees are unhappy. Let's not do that again. So, yeah. I mean, I don't have a good, good advice on how to get there outside of just listening to these stories and saying, yes. okay, um, all money is not good money. Mm. And I think the sooner you can figure that out, especially if you own an agency, um, the better. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I come to you on the on the other side of the spectrum. You, agency owner, uh, services provider. We we are Dub is uh, a technology company. It's a SaaS company. It's a video communication company. We have you know thirty thousand plus businesses that use our software to connect, and it's video and it's messaging, it's automation, it's a CRM. The thing that we have done to to try to embrace this idea of listening is that we've created our roadmap. And this was a process that took some time for me, but we've created a transparent roadmap so that if someone raises their hand and says, we need an integration with uh, active campaign, we say, uh, you know what, we'll do it. We don't, we never say no, we'll say, we'll do it. We'll just add it to our roadmap. And then we make that roadmap transparent. And I think what that's done for us is that it's turned this idea of number one, listening to our customers and then building something to ultimately serve them either sooner or later. But then number two is turning that process into a documented content strategy so that we can be transparent and we can get people excited about how we are listening and how we are building for, for the future. Now, I think with in the services industry, that's not something that necessarily can happen. You don't really have a roadmap. You don't say in six months we're going to offer you know, this service or do you? I've never seen that done. We do. Um, we have a roadmap, but it's not, it's probably not as predictable, I guess, as yeah. yours. Um, but, but we receive feedback as well, but it's more about services to offer. Mm. Um, for example, some of our clients are using um, marketing automation platforms that we don't currently support. And we get feedback like, hey, you know, I would love if you could support us in Zoho or Microsoft Dynamics or whatever mm. that looks like. So those are things we could consider putting on a roadmap. Um, we know as an agency, we must continue to evolve the way that we serve service our clients. And there are other things we look at, like right now we're looking at bringing pay-per-click in-house um, and that's on our roadmap. Now, I love the idea of putting it out there publicly. Uh, I don't, we don't publish it, but we do tell people mm. like these are, these are the strategies that we're testing right now. And we test them internally first, and then we test them on our um, like early adopter clients. And so we typically roll them out about six months after we start testing. Mm. 
You know, I, I want to challenge this, the services industry here officially <laughs> to, to put a roadmap out there of, of uh, services that can be offered in the future. And, uh, and I suggest this for two reasons. Number one is this is actually ours, what we're looking at on the screen here. And this is not fully updated but the, because we kind of shifted over to another system, but this is relatively new. Um, but what's interesting about this is that it doesn't just say that we're going to build something. It says we don't have it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And here's written proof that we don't have it and that it's not available yet. Um, I kid when I say that services industry should have this because it's a little overkill. Um, but but I think there is <laughs> but I think there is there is something to be said about not just saying that you don't have it, but actually showing that you don't have it. A document that says future future services for 2022 or 2021. Yeah, I, I think that HubSpot has a similar process mm. where, where mm. you can request features and then mm. people can go in and upvote them and it yes. helps them understand what should be developed and when, how much need there is. And frankly, I think we could probably do the exact same thing. We yeah. are not as transparent about it, not on purpose, um, yeah. you know, so. You made me think. I think that's definitely something we should be doing. You know, it's it's interesting. I my brain always goes to this idea of how can we turn a process into content, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. for the for the community, and and that that can be applied to so many different things. And I think HubSpot, in in fact, is a great example of that because they do. Uh, I, I do have my complaints. I'm certified in pretty much all of their stuff. <laughs> so I've been through that whole ecosystem. Um, but but I think overall, I think what they've done a really good job at is providing that 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 transparency, which I think people people really like. Yeah. Um, to switch the, the, the convo a little bit, I want to get into this idea of there was this video that that I saw um, over a year ago. Actually, it's been almost two years ago, which ha haunted me. And I think it's every SaaS any person that works at a SaaS company should watch this video. And it's from the CEO of Constant Contact, the email company that competes with MailChimp. And she talks about, you know, this idea of the slow ramp of death for a SaaS company. Okay, it's, it's very, it's very stoic, it's very morose, it's depressing, but there's a takeaway here. And what she talks about is this idea that SaaS companies you know, they, they go through the motions, they acquire customers, they figure out their unit economics, they get this churn rate, which is a leak in their boat, it's inevitable. Uh, you know, they go, they go, they experiment, they waste money, they advertise, they try this, they try that, they go through this process, and they're on this sort of slow ramp to ultimately death. Scary. Hmm. Now, what are some of the ways that you might suggest? And I know that this is a complex question, but I will throw it out there just to get the conversation started. But what are some of the things that you might recommend that SaaS companies prioritize for their growth to avoid that death? Ooh, that is a big question. <laughs> uh, one of the first things that came to mind while you were talking is when you are working to fill your pipeline and generate leads, aiming for ways that you can get more more companies more people in your pipeline at a time so that could be partnering with people who have influence in the industry it could be um like in in our example we work with some insure tech companies and so if they can find associations that brokers are part of or you know just where 
where their target audience is hanging out, if you will, online or in person and get in front of them, that's always better than individually going after each and every opportunity. I think that's a mistake that a lot of companies make at the beginning. And then they say like, oh yeah, we have such a great, huge pipeline. You know, We've got our 20 companies that we wanna work with, but at the beginning, the number that actually close is gonna be very low because you are a startup and people are waiting for others to, I guess, vet your product because once you get those first five, 10, 15, however many customers, it's a lot easier to get more. So that's one thing that I would do is just examine and get creative on the ways that you can fill your pipeline in a more efficient way. Um, geez, I get. Well, that's important. I think that's that's a that's an amazing starting point right there. Um, let's let's explore that because what I think that you've established for us is this idea of the 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 ideal the ideal client. You know who are, who is that ideal client for us? Are we going to go try to cater to all these different sectors and all these different segments, or are we going to kind of try to really work with one and focus on that? And then I think the other, my other takeaway here is happiness, retention. It's, it's actually getting someone to come in, be happy. And then what I always think about is that social coefficient. If they're happy, they're going to mention it to a friend. Mm -hmm. And that is the best marketing. I think there's data that it shows that it's like 7x better than what we do, you know, in traditional marketing. So I, I think that I think that that's I think that's really sound. I think that's a really good place to to start. The other word that you mentioned, which is like I think the most underserved channel in in SaaS growth or in any growth in any marketing growth is partnerships, and that's what mm -hmm. you mentioned. And and that is I think it's hard to do because those partnerships when when people talk about partnerships, they, they think, what I think goes through their mind is, is almost like this micro trauma where I'm going to speak to this person, we're going to have these emails, we're going to have these calls, it's going to take six months, and then maybe something happens, maybe you sign a document, maybe something happens, but ultimately it's just going to be a waste of time and we just had fun and we made a connection. How can we make our partnerships more mutually beneficial and um, more scalable? Mm -hmm. I, in my opinion, you have to be really, really specific on, okay, if we are going to create a partnership, what there has to be mutual benefit on both sides. So it can't be you approaching someone that has the audience that you want to reach and they get, mm, who knows, you know, um, so really identifying what the benefit is on both sides, what the deliverable is. So if you're going to create a partnership, what, what are we going to do? Are we gonna host a webinar together? Are we going to put out a joint newsletter or some kind of content? Um, are we gonna host a virtual or live event together? Um, how much is each of us promoting it and what are we both bringing to the table? So I think partnerships can be really discouraging because I get those messages on LinkedIn all the time. Hey, we have a similar audience. I would love to refer business back and forth. And I'm always like, okay, you know, like, uh, it seems like it's more work than it's worth a lot of the time. And, and but the thing is, if you go in with that attitude, it's, it's not going to work. Right. Right. I would say just choosing the few kinds of partnerships that you really want to put in place and then being very specific with who you want to partner with, why and what you're bringing to the table. Mm. Very cool. And talk to me a little bit about more about more about your business. Um, what uh, who are who is your ideal client? Who are you guys working with? What is the ultimate problem that you guys are solving? Yes, we are working with B two B software companies that are typically 
pre-revenue funded. So they might have an idea that they're launching and we launch the product with them um, up to 30, 40 million dollars. Um, we work with some companies that are VC backed, private equity owned at different stages. A few bootstrap companies too, and those are fun to work with. And they're in different industries that are being changed by SaaS right now. So um, healthcare, insurance, construction, higher ed, the education market in general is being massively changed as we know by tech right now. And typically it's a, a little bit more of an enterprise sale for the companies that we're working with. Got it. That makes total sense. Um, you have seen some tremendous uh, success in your, in your LinkedIn messaging and your LinkedIn marketing. Um, you have a very engaged audience of nearly 70,000 followers. What has this process been like for you? How have you made this part of your, of your flow? How have you been able to run a business and also put content out there consistently and engage with your audience? Yeah, I knew right off the bat that I would never be able to handle this by myself. So the process of planning, writing, shooting, you know, everything that goes into it, I knew if it was left to me, I would probably put out one piece of content a week. Um, so I brought in help and accountability, really. So at the beginning, I was working with a company that we met every single week. I had to submit ideas of what I wanted to shoot to them, and they brought their own as well. We shot a certain amount of topics every single week, um, and then we worked together on a schedule for accountability. I really... I need that accountability in a lot of different ways. Like I've been working with my business coach for six years and I swear she's the only reason I do half of the stuff I'm supposed to do because I don't want to show up to my meetings with her saying, oh no, I forgot to you know, analyze our financials for you or whatever that looks like. So I would say that has been the biggest piece in making it successful because on LinkedIn, what brings you the audience is not only relatability, but consistency. Um, and that is, like I said, one of the most important things. I think that's so important. I think that people have this idea that they're going to put this piece of content out there. They have this vision, you know, that's going to be so uh, engaging and so, you know, viral. And then they put it out there, they do nothing. And then it's like this, maybe there's some traction, but most likely not. And then it's just this, this downturn and, and there's no, fuel you know and that fuel i think is to your point is 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 consistency in fact um mm -hmm. and and that's where i think you are in the you know the one percent club <laughs> i might find myself in the five percent club but i think it's those those people that actually that actually put in the work to stay consistent so congratulations on on your success um where can we learn more about you your website your linkedin profile social instagram twitter give us all Yes. So if you want to reach out to me personally, LinkedIn is a great place to do that or um, JackieHermis.com. I have some content and some of my speaking stuff on there. Um, and then the company is Excelity Marketing, A-C-C-E-L-I-T-Y.com. And we are all over the socials as well. So any of those places. Amazing. Well, we have, speaking of speaking, we have, Dub has an online summit. It's called Action. And I wanted to formally invite you to be a virtual speaker, <laughs> which nice. uh, which is a little thing. So I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I will have someone from my team reach out and we'd love to have you share more content with us. Please do. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jackie. And I will see you on LinkedIn.
Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Stick around for some notes.